are excited to gather today to celebrate the best news ever. And if you've been a part of this series over this last month, we have really saved the best for last. We are talking about the resurrection this morning, the most significant event in all of history, that paradigm-shifting event when Jesus rose from the grave. But this morning as we begin, I'm going to ask you to do something that might just be impossible. It might just be impossible for those of us who woke up this morning excited that it was Easter morning. Because what I'm going to ask you to do is to imagine that you don't know what you know about Easter. I want you to try to place yourself in this story that we're going to read from Mark chapter 16. And I want you to imagine that you woke up on Easter morning not knowing about the resurrection. In fact, I want you to imagine that you had just had the worst day ever. And you were expecting today to be the worst day ever. And maybe tomorrow would be the worst day ever as well. So as we read this story, which you can find on page 1584, if you want to follow along in one of our pew Bibles there in the seats in front of you, it's going to be on the screen uh, behind me as well. So you're welcome uh, to follow along or to just listen to this. But I want you to imagine yourself in this story on Easter morning, not knowing what we know. Mark records for us that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? So imagine the hopelessness that they're feeling. They're expecting to go and to anoint Jesus' dead body. They're going to honor the lifeless body of the man that they had been following for years. The man that they had hoped was the Messiah that they can't imagine now could possibly be the Messiah. Because the last time they saw him, he was coming down from a cross having breathed his last and being placed in a tomb. They had just had the worst Sabbath ever. And they were waking up to a task that they could never have imagined just 72 hours before. Imagine the despair that they feel. Imagine the fear that is gripping their hearts right now. You see, Rome had a pretty good track record that if somebody was crucified for leading a rebellion, anyone associated with them was probably next and would be lined up on crosses next to them. So there was a very real fear that they might be next. And they were taking great risk with their very lives to even go to this place. Imagine the anger at those who had betrayed Christ, at those who had led the mock trial, at those who had sentenced him to death and been his executioner. Imagine the disillusionment, having left home, family, 
career and everything else because you believed. Because you believed that this was the Messiah. And his words, follow me, still ring in your ears and in the depths of your soul. Because how do you follow a dead guy? Was that the invitation to follow him and to die themselves very soon? You see, Jesus' followers really believed that he was the Messiah. They did leave behind everything. They did radically alter their life plans to follow him because he looked them in the eye and said, follow me. They really believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And he was. Just not at all like they were expecting. And they really believed that he was going to launch a new kingdom, that that's what the Messiah was going to do, was launch a new kingdom, a new order of authority in the world. And he did, but not at all like they were expecting. And they really thought that they were going to be in the prime positions in this new kingdom. And they were, but not at all like they were expecting. And so to put ourselves in this story, we have to imagine, what if you really thought somebody could help you with your biggest problem and you gave up everything to follow only to see him die in the most shameful, humiliating, gruesome death imaginable? And what if you might be next? That's the emotional climate of these women In Matthew 16, verses 1 through 3, they don't know what we know. They thought that they had a Rome problem, that their biggest problem was Rome. Rome had been occupying Israel and Jerusalem for generations at this point. And these people had been under foreign occupation for many generations, first with Alexander the Great and then a a brief period of time where there was a revolution and they established their own Rule, And then Rome came in behind that and established their own regime. And it was a harsh regime. It was a brutal regime. They taxed them to the point of poverty. They treated them very, very harshly. They abused them regularly and dealt with any kind of rebellion very swiftly. And so it's no surprise that the average Jew hated Rome, hated everything about Rome. And hated every Roman they knew. And so they thought that Jesus, as they saw evidence after evidence after evidence throughout his ministry, they thought that Jesus was this Messiah that was going to throw off Roman oppression and establish this new worldly kingdom and solve their biggest problem. But how can he do that if he's dead? How can they follow a dead Messiah. And so I wonder, how about you? What's your biggest problem right now? If somebody were to ask you, what is your biggest problem in life right now? What would you say? What would you answer? What is your biggest problem? Is it something to do with your health? Or maybe an issue in your relationships. Maybe your marriage is just a constant source of tension and strife and difficult. Maybe it's family relationships. Or maybe it's a whole web 
of broken relationships that are just overwhelming. Maybe it has something to do with your work. There's always more to do than can possibly be done, and there's no end in sight, and it just feels like a never-ending, suffocating work situation. Maybe it's financial. You run out of money before you run out of month, every month. You don't live paycheck to paycheck, you live paycheck to almost paycheck. And so your biggest problem is financial, or maybe it's something to do with an addiction that you just can't seem to shake free. What is your biggest problem right now? You see, I believe many of us come to Jesus because we believe he can solve our problems. There's a good track record for this. There's a good precedent for this. We shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. Everyone we see in the Gospels, bringing the sick, bringing the lame, bringing the deaf and the blind, bringing the demon-possessed to Jesus with a problem, and he solved the problem. He met their need. And so as we think about that, and we think about what their biggest problem was, this Rome problem, it's very interesting to consider that Jesus, as we look in the Gospels, as we read the Gospels, Jesus didn't seem to have that big of a problem with Rome. I'm sure he did not approve of what they were doing. I'm not saying that at all. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't go toe-to-toe with Rome on a regular basis. He doesn't go toe-to-toe with Rome much at all. Most of his interactions with Roman people seem to surprise those around him. He applauds the faith of a Roman centurion. He says crazy stuff like, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Go ahead and pay your taxes to Caesar. He says if, you're, if someone forces you to go with him one mile, go a second mile. And he was relating that to, to something that Roman soldiers regularly did. They would find somebody along a road, and they'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm sick and tired of carrying all my gear. And their law allowed them to compel somebody to carry all their gear, all their possessions for a mile, and Jesus says, go a second mile with them. And he even said things like, love your enemies. Who was their biggest enemy? It was Rome. And he said, pray for those who persecute you. Who was their biggest persecutor? It was Rome. And you flip the other side of the coin, Rome didn't seem to have that big of a problem with Jesus either. It was the religious officials that led the charge. In fact, Pilate went on record as the Roman governor, the top of the pyramid in that region. I find no fault in this man. In fact, I'm washing my hands of this entire thing. I want nothing to do with it. Rome didn't have a big problem with Jesus. And so with all that in mind, we get to read the next word in Scripture. And it's a beautiful word. It's the word but. It establishes something new. It's in the English grammar. It's a disjunctive conjunction. It marries these two statements together, but it establishes something brand new. And he says, but, in verse 4, when they, when these women looked up, from their despair, from their sorrow, from their disillusionment, from their fear, from their anger, from their hopelessness. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. They were not expecting this. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. 
But he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And our bottom line today as we celebrate the good news that he is risen is that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. It is that great hinge of history. It changes everything from what was before and establishes everything that came after. And that is the best news ever. So when I tell you we saved the best for last in this series that we've been talking about for the last month, we really did. The resurrection is the best news ever. It's the best of the best. And it shows us something interesting, that Jesus knew that their biggest problem was not Rome. He knew that it was sin. He knew that it was death. He knew that Rome was a problem because of sin and death, because of the striving for mankind to get power or to get pleasure or to get money or to get fame or to get anything else other than God. And that was why Rome was oppressing, and that if he dealt with the Rome problem, there would be another problem that would come in behind it if he didn't solve the biggest problem. He knew that conquering sin and death was the real reason he had come. Not just to overthrow Rome and deliver a generation or two from Roman oppression. He knew that he was here to conquer the real problem, to conquer sin, to conquer death. And at some point, every person in this room and every person watching online has to decide if Jesus is just a dead guy or if he is the risen Savior, the living and eternal Son of God. You see, Jesus doesn't just solve temporary problems for us or even for a generation or two. He loves us too much to deal with the symptoms. He goes to the root. He goes to the root of sin. He goes to the big problem of death. And that's why the resurrection changes Everything Because the resurrection defeated sin once and for all. And defeated death once and for all. The resurrection changed everything for Peter. If you've been reading your gospels this month, if you've been reading through Mark, you know that Peter was the closest to Jesus. It was Peter, James, and John. Those were the inner three. And that Peter was the ready, fire, aim. He was always right there. He was the first one to speak. He was the first one to jump in. And he was the first one to deny Christ. Not once. Oh, dang. He said that would happen. I need to not do that. No, not just once, not twice, but three times. Emphatically claiming the last time, I don't even know who you're talking about. But the resurrection changed everything for Peter. Imagine the guilt. Imagine the shame. Imagine the remorse. Imagine the regret that Peter would have felt. But the resurrection changed everything for Peter. The resurrection changed everything for James and John, for all of the disciples. The resurrection changed everything for Mary and Martha, not just when they looked up expecting to find Jesus' body in a tomb and found instead an angel sharing with them the good news that he is risen. The resurrection changed everything for everyone who believed. Changed everything for everyone who believed. And it changed everything for a Pharisee named Saul. It changed his name from Saul to Paul. It changed his life mission 
from destroying this new church to planting new churches, from persecuting disciples to making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The resurrection was the most important thing that had ever happened. And Paul is the first one that calls that forward in writing that we can see, declaring this is the most important thing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, if you'd like to. It'll also be on the screens behind me. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul is writing to one of these churches that he has planted. And he's sharing with them that I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. What was of most importance in Paul's mind? It was the resurrection. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why does that matter so much? Well, we've already read the words in our responsive reading between the first two songs, but hear them again, understanding that they, these are the best news ever. He says in verse 54, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that leads to death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul knew what was the best news ever. Paul knew what was the most important thing that had ever happened. And it shows us that Jesus knew we had a sin problem. Jesus knew that our biggest issue was sin and death, and he came to solve that problem once and for all. So why does the resurrection change everything? Because prior to the resurrection, as we see here, sin led to death, and death was the end. It was over. End of story. No curtain call. It's done. But the resurrection changed that, and the resurrection changes everything. Because now sin has been defeated and death has been conquered, and that is good news. That is the best news ever for the whole world, for all people, everywhere, and all time. And we are the fruit of that message going forth into the world for the last 2,000 years. That several billion people believe that and are celebrating the resurrection this morning all around the world. And that here we are 2,000 years later and thousands of miles away celebrating that the resurrection changes everything. And because sin is defeated and because death has been conquered, we don't have to live in hopelessness because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection gives us hope in any circumstance. Because of the resurrection, we don't have to live in despair. Because the resurrection changes everything and can bring hope even to the deepest despair. We don't have to live in fear. Because the resurrection changes everything. We can respond in faith to the resurrection and we can be assured of a salvation and an eternity with Christ forever. We don't have to live in guilt and shame. 
because the resurrection can wash us cleaner than snow because guilt has been dealt with, because shame has been done away with. We don't have to live in anger. We don't have to live in addiction because the resurrection can break the bonds of anger and addiction. We don't have to live a meaningless life consumed with all of these things because the resurrection brings us freedom to live a life in Christ joining him in his redemptive mission in this world to conquer sin and death and to make sure the good news that the resurrection changes everything gets to everyone, everywhere. Now, there are two kinds of people in this room. There are those for whom the resurrection has changed everything. And you can point to that time in your life when the resurrection changed everything and opened new doors for you and began you on a process of following Christ, learning from Christ, dealing with your own sin, dealing with your own hurts and habits and hang-ups. And you've experienced that freedom increasingly throughout your life and everything has changed as a result. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are those for whom the resurrection has changed very little. But there is no one for whom the resurrection has changed nothing. Because the resurrection says that nobody is too far gone. That all can be redeemed. All can be saved. All can experience new life in Christ. And so which are you? Has the resurrection changed everything in your life? Or has it changed very little? And which do you want to be? Do you want the resurrection to change everything? Do you want to join Jesus Christ in his redemptive mission in this world? What will you do? And who will you tell? And who will you serve on behalf of Christ? Because you truly and deeply believe the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. And it can change everything for everyone, everywhere. So today you might respond in faith to this message by accepting the grace of God and by receiving salvation. And you can point to this day from every day forward as the day that you received Christ, the day that the resurrection changed everything for you. For others, you may decide that today is the day that I get baptized. Today is the day that I go on record, that I make a public profession of my faith, that I say that the resurrection has changed everything for me. We have two that have already decided they will be baptized this morning. The tank is full. We'll be celebrating with them at the end of our service. But we also have extra towels, and we have shorts and shirts that you can change into. And there is a biblical precedent for a spontaneous conversion. Philip and the Ethiopian were on the way, and, and Philip opens the Scriptures to him and helps him to understand that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, that Jesus, through the power of the resurrection, changed everything. And this Ethiopian says, there's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And so I say to you that feel that the Spirit of God might be calling you to be baptized today, there's some water. Why shouldn't you be baptized? Don't let anything hold you back. We've taken care of all the practicalities. If you want to be baptized, today can be the day. And for those of you that have been saved and you have been baptized and you are here to celebrate the resurrection, let it change anything in your life that still looks like your old self. And ask the Spirit of God, what do you want me to do with what I have heard? What do you want me to surrender as a result of what I have heard? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you 
We thank you for the good news that we are no longer bound to hopelessness, to sin, to despair, to death. That we can live lives of freedom in Christ. That the resurrection can change everything for every single one of us. For those that walked into this room not knowing that the resurrection changed everything, I pray, Lord, that they would have the faith to respond. To pray a prayer that goes something like this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. I confess that I have fallen short of your glory. And I desire for the resurrection to change everything in my life. I desire to repent, to turn from my sin, to turn towards you, to follow you through life, to learn what it means to be a disciple, to learn how to join you in your redemptive mission in this world. And I pledge to follow you every day from this day forward. For those whose next step is to make a public profession of their faith by following our Lord in baptism, I pray, God, that you would move upon their hearts and that they would meet me by the back doors to the sanctuary and that they would take that next step. And for those of us who have joined you in your redemptive mission, God, show us if there is anything that we need to surrender to you, anything that has come between us, anything that needs to go so that we can follow you more wholeheartedly and may we respond in faith exactly as you lead because you are our living hope. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.